Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and we're talking about residential investment. I'm joined today by Ryan Prince, who's the founder at Uncle. He's the vice chairman at RealStar Group and it's looking a little bit like Keanu Reeves. Great to see you, Ryan. You've dashed in this morning from Toronto, looking fantastic, very, uh, uh, you know, very, very busy, very hectic diary. So thank you very much for making the time. And now let's dial back 24 years to when you landed on these shores and Real Star Group has been around for about 47 years but you came here at the end of the 90s uh, and you've been involved not just in residential but actually in a variety uh, of different asset classes and we'll come on to talk about those in a minute but tell us a little bit about some of the things that have changed over those two and a half decades and where you see the market at now. Well that's not a small question to start with. You know I think Looking at it from a real estate point of view, I guess the the thing that's changed the most is the nature of the sec. I think the sector's changed a lot. I think it has institutionalized a lot since I arrived. So when we started, I, I landed here in '98, and we set up the Real Star business here in 2002. And in those days, you really still had the tail end of, you know, Gerald Ronson, John Ritblatt. There's mm. there's a whole range of Elliot Bernard, very entrepreneurial property kind of maven, sort of buccaneering mentality. Yeah, I don't really think you see that very much anymore. Quite frankly, I think you the the weight of capital that's come behind institutional investment in the form of pension funds, yeah. the GICs of the world, the Canadian pension funds, the professionalization and the upskilling of all those teams has really changed the nature of cost of capital, the skill set of that capital, and the place for those kind of much more kind of entrepreneurial, swashbuckly type characters. Has it you don't dampened see it? Is that, is, that a, is that a negative thing? Well, or, I, I think mean, it, is it, Or is it simply that some of the more straight-laced capital partners wouldn't want a buccaneering entrepreneur spending their money? Look, I, I think the asset class has grown up in a way, over the last 20-odd years. Yeah. So, you know, real estate was always considered alter- in the alternatives bucket. If we, as we get into this conversation, if yeah. you think about yeah. hotels and apartment buildings and doctor surgeries, those were the alternatives within the alternatives bucket. And these days, student housing is a pretty mainstream asset class for yeah. a very wide range. So I think as those things have changed and as capital has flowed in, the nature of the people behind those sectors has changed along with it. And so I think there's lots of good about that. I think it, you know, we're talking about where this capital comes from is contributing to people's pension funds. And Mm. there's lots of good reasons why you want very solid custodians of that capital. You know, on the flip side, is it a little less fun and interesting for folks like you to do interviews? Probably. Um, I mean, tell us a bit about where you've come from, because your background and your, your family's background has been in real estate. You come from a very exciting lineage of investors and Real Star Group is known globally. It's been around for 47 and a bit years, hasn't it? Made its whole foundation in residential in, in Canada. What were some of the things that, I guess, were indoctrinated into you growing up? Were you always destined for a career in real estate or, or were you going to go off and be a brain surgeon at some point? Uh, brain surgeon definitely would be a no. Destined for real estate, I would have told you no to that answer as well. I mean, lineage is probably an overstatement. You know, to give you some background, you know, my my father was an immigrant to Canada. 
came over on a boat after the Second World War. From what? Who was born in Germany in a displaced persons camp after the Second War. Yeah. Came over to Canada, did what all that community did, which is get a profession. Job number one when you're an immigrant in those days and probably in these days is, you know, you doctor, lawyer is number one and two on the list. My dad went with number two. He became a lawyer. Yeah. Practiced. And while practicing, uh, met with who is now today and remains his business partner through all those years. And they started their business effectively moonlighting. And that really parlayed itself into what Real Star is today. So I think that was the background. So from a lineage point of view, it's certainly entrepreneurial in terms of bootstrapped. Yeah. And there's a very large, successful class of contemporaries around my dad's age who, you know, did various really interesting ventures around the real estate sector and other sectors coming out of that era. Yeah. And the real star story has really been one of kind of sticking to its knitting and not being terribly distracted all the way along. So the business really started out addressing a shortage of rental stock yeah. in the Canadian market in the early 70s. And whether that was investing alongside insurance companies or banks or now pension funds with our own capital, mm. that's really the evolution of the business. So in the world of the tortoise and the hare, we've always much more been, I would say, the tortoise than the hare and always put a huge priority on preservation of capital and trusting that you know the power of compounding over time is very, very significant. The, you know, the, the human mind, I think Einstein, there's some quote that the human mind really doesn't understand the power of exponential growth and compounding. And I think that's what you see over 30, 40 years in the real estate business. Mm -hmm. And as a business, it's never been compelled to try and spread its wings south into the wider US market in terms of competing, or, or is that something? Well, the Canadian business has been in the U.S. in and out over time, both in our hotel business and in the in the multifamily business, but not in, a, I would say, a huge way. And I would say one of the mistakes that Americans make coming north of the border and vice versa, a lot of Canadians over time have made going south is we speak the same language, kind of generally speaking, look like the same cultures, but actually they're very, very different places. It's like telling an Aussie that he's a Kiwi. There's a big, big difference. And I think a lot of people make mistakes going both ways. And so for that reason, talking about sticking to our knitting, we've generally found that in our home market, we've, we've found competitive advantage that, that we'd like to you know, try and take advantage of. Yeah, yeah. So when you landed, you were looking initially at GP surgeries, which is obviously uh, now in modern day England, well, modern day the world, probably quite a relevant sector to be anywhere close to. Do you wish you'd maybe stuck with those? Or was it? Oh, I would. I mean, the GP surgery sector is still a fantastic asset class. If you look at how, you know, PHP, one of the big REITs has performed, it's continually been a very stable, reliable asset class. I mean, going back, I started out actually as a technology investor in the very early days of my career here and morphed into real estate in 02. And my logic in real estate was I knew so little that I didn't want to compete with people who were clearly much more experienced and smarter than me. So those were the retail sector, the office sector, um, even the industrial sector. Yeah. And so doctor surgeries was really a form of a theme that has continued for those 20 years, which is, you know, taking the Wayne Gretzky analogy in Canadian ice hockey, you know, the way to score a goal is you skate where the puck isn't and where it's going. Surgeries sort of fit that, which is nobody was interested. It was too small for 
big investors and it was too big for pure retail investors, high net worth. So therefore it was interesting in terms of its asset class, the covenants yeah. and so yeah. on. And that became a theme for us. So the, the problem we got to in surgeries was we just couldn't buy enough of them. They were very, very tough to find that you were highly reliant on government funding. And as government funding ebbed and flowed post the Blair government, it was just too hard to scale. So we yeah. built a lovely portfolio and we, we kind of ran out of road on it. And that's what led to us moving our attention to other sectors and asset classes that had some more sort of scope for scale, which led us into the hotel sector. Yeah, well, we had the boss of Assure on a few weeks ago, actually, mm-hmm. on, on the Bosscast talking about that. So, uh, well, you... I remember the original Assure was didn't didn't start out being called Assure; it started out called MIPIF, Medical Property Investment Fund. It was the beginning of the end of us being able to buy. Their cost of capital was lower than ours, and that that was pretty much the beginning of the end for us. So, you moved into hotels. So, tell us before we go on to hotels about the tech work. So, why did you walk away from that? Was it dot com crash related, or or just? It wasn't really. We, I, you know, I was really. It was nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine. I had through happenstance hooked up with a group of people who were at the sort of the front end of the the dot com entrepreneurs, guys like Brent Hoberman and others here. And what I worked out was investing in early stage businesses where we had minority stakes and no control ultimately just didn't really suit my personality. You know, you're really a support system and you're making a series of educated bets. You could debate the word educated, but we're making a series of bets on on markets, on product, and then you're kind of sitting and waiting. And what I worked out over three or four years of doing that was it didn't suit my personality traits to kind of be totally hands off and and sit and wait and hope for the best. And so I decided that as a career path over the next, you know, 10, 20 years of my life, that wasn't probably going to make me that happy. Yeah. So would you say you're a control freak? Or you just like um, you have to ask my wife that question. <laughs> um, I, I definitely like having being in a position to make decisions and live and die by the sword i'm fully prepared to i've always been prepared to accept that i'm going to get lots of things wrong and and uh that that's a fact of life you can't be in business and not get things wrong yeah but being at the switch and being able to make those calls has always been important to me okay well we'll take that as a yes um (laughs) take it as you will um let's talk about hotels that was something that you got right wasn't it this is an eleven thousand bed portfolio of of hotels um, there's actually thirteen thousand. was it 13 sorry my apologies 13,000 so tell us about that strategy because bed sheds and meds is the current phrase that you'll hear coughed out by rent a quote research people right across the sphere of, of real estate right and it's yeah. sort of a, you know labs and and students and uh, and, and warehousing but what was the strategy originally with this so this is back in Two, three, two, four, right? Yeah. So if you have, if you sort of cast your mind back to 2003 and four, when we started thinking the sector was interesting, you had a couple of different dynamics at play. One was we'd just been through sort of the dot-com tech wreck. 9-11 had happened in 2001. And you, if you hear the, the biggest thing that had happened in the European scene was Guy Hands, who at the time was a fairly infallible investor, had bought Meridian Hotels yeah. and it had gone into administration through a combination of the balance sheet combined with the events that happened post 9-11. And so if you looked at where the sector was and then you looked at what was going on more broadly in the U.S. was the separation of real estate ownership and management, which they called bricks and brains out of the 1992-93 recession. 
it was apparent to me that that same thing would happen here. And you had these huge leisure businesses, Bass at the time, which is now part of IHG. You had Whitbread. So all the Ladbrokes, they all owned big hotel businesses and they all were looking to kind of separate, split up and optimize their balance sheets. And so I saw there would be an opportunity to go buy the real estate from those companies to take advantage of that public company arbitrage. So we went around looking at companies where those dynamics were in play and were ultimately successful in 2004, 2005 in agreeing a transaction with who's now called IHG to essentially buy the real estate portfolio of their UK assets, which were predominantly Holiday Inn and Crown Plaza assets. So in the end, we ended up buying 73 hotels, just over 13,000 bedrooms all around the UK in a joint venture between ourselves, GIC Real Estate, which as you know, is the government of Singapore's sovereign wealth fund, uh, and Lehman Brothers real estate private equity arm. Yeah, so there's some serious serious institutional partners, right? Yeah, I mean, at the time, it was a billion-pound transaction. It was, I mean, I don't know all the stats, but it was definitely, we definitely touted it as the largest UK hotel transaction that had been done at that time. Mm, absolutely. And how do you think, when you reflect on the situation now in hotels, has there been a point over the last year, and we'll, we'll come on to what, what you've been doing with Uncle in a minute, but has there been a point over the last year or so, given everything, that's happened during the pandemic where you thought about going back in given obviously the failing operational platforms across the piece, given the, obviously the big kicker in valuations in some areas, fall off in business travel, you know, all of these things create opportunities, right? Sure. I mean, so we exited that portfolio in 2014, 15 with a long, I could write a book about 10 year story in the middle with everything that happened with Lehman brothers in the world and the GFC. At the time we exited, we clearly thought the world was trending up and pricing, not down. And I do think that hotels do have these moments and these inflection points where there's this gap between everyone's running for the door and you know who has capital to look a little further out in yeah. the picture. And so between 15 and 20, we certainly didn't see a huge number of opportunities. I did think that this last year and a half would yield a whole bunch of opportunities in the hospitality space. I have to say, I haven't seen a lot of that in Europe yet. There's certainly been some transactions in the US. Is that because the banks have just got their fingers in their ears and their eyes shut to avoid making decisions? No, I don't think it's that at all this time because most real estate isn't nearly as highly levered. If you go back to the last crisis, you know, people were genuinely 85, 90% levered and yeah. that w- w- yeah. is what was going on. This time around, people are, you know, 50, 60% levered. I think it's the opposite. I think owners are very well capitalized. They have a lot of equity and they're funding their debt service because they really do have real equity in these businesses. And therefore they're going to write the checks because they think it's worth it. And so I think that owners have been keeping their assets in check and afloat and banks haven't been foreclosing. You could argue there's a loan to value question, but generally speaking at 50, 60% leverage, if their debt's being serviced, they've been happy to sit, but I don't think they've been putting their fingers in their ears for the most part. Mm. Well, that's interesting. So in terms of your focus over the last five, six years, you, you set up uncle and that's uh, an integrated investor operator of, of residential real estate. You've got a big waiting to, to London and the Southeast. Tell us about some of the recent deals that you've done with Uncle and how you see the market and how that business has evolved, given what you described as being your heritage in Canada. Sure. I mean, you know, Uncle is a bit of a mind meld between 
all of our experience around multifamily, our experience in the hotel branded sector, and being around in the UK. And when when I took a step back and looked at that after we sold our hotel portfolio in 2015, it occurred to me that you know brands are and consumer preferences are critical to decision making and value. And if you look at airlines, if you look at car hire, if you look at hotels, every one of those sectors has a consumer brand you or I have heard of. Avis Rent-A-Car, Hertz Rent-A-Car, Marriott Hilton, JetBlue, mm. whatever you like. So by contrast, if you look in the rental housing sector, you couldn't name a single brand that comes to mind for mm. the place you want to live. You might be able to name the place you'd go look to find a place to live, namely a portal like Rightmove or an estate agent like Savills. But the actual nuts and bolts of the person, the organization is delivering you that good and service is nothing anyone's ever heard of. Does that matter? Because housing or rented housing isn't, you know, it, it's not a high volume business like hospitality, right? It's not, you're not going in and out of hotels in the same way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like anything, you, you could argue that with a TV. I mean, does, does a brand matter on your Samsung, on your LG? You're going to buy one every 10 years. Ultimately, I mm. think consumer decisions are led by awareness, yeah. reputation, and loyalty. So does it matter? Short answer is time will tell. So my hypothesis is brand does matter. I think to do that, you need awareness. And to to have awareness, you need scale to justify an investment behind it. So it takes time. I don't think in our world, you can create that overnight. If you look at where we started, we built our first purpose-built building back in. We started constructing it in 2014-15. Yeah, so that was uh, Elephant and Castle scheme in Newington Butts. Right. 45-story tower, an elephant and castle. <laughs> you started as you meant to go on. That was yeah. the biggest residential site in London, I think, Yeah, at the time, we started larger than I probably would have written on the blank sheet of paper. And, and since that time, we've continued you know, doing three or four new transactions every year. And so if I look at our portfolio today, I think the latest count is we're up to 14 locations. Almost all of those locations are in Greater London. One is in Manchester. We're about to announce a second one, which will be also outside of London in the north of England, about 450 apartments. It'll have all the bells and whistles of our amenitized kind of product. Yeah. And we'll continue to grow that way. And I think when you have that scale, the idea is it's a bit like if you were traveling to a city and you knew you wanted to stay in a standard hotel or an ACE hotel, whatever you like, yeah. you would then, instead of going to TripAdvisor, you would go direct to that company's website and say, do you have a room for me on these nights in the kind of location that's going to suit my meeting? In the case of Uncle, what I'd like to think is over time, someone will know that Uncle exists in London. People want to come live in our buildings. And they'd say, I know I'm working here. Do you have an uncle that suits my budget, my location, my requirements? And I think it's a very laudable ambition to have. How workable is that given the dysfunction of the UK housing market? Well, I I think I've always described what we're doing as a deal, not a business. So I think, you know, we are 10 years into the project Mm. and we probably have just under 4,000 rooms between what we have open and, you know, what's in the pipeline under construction. That's not a lot in the grand scheme of things. I mean, to give you context, you know, our Canadian portfolio is probably 30,000 apartments 
and a large operator in Canada might be 60 or 70,000. That's a population of 35 million. Hmm. So if you kind of map that to the UK and say there's 60 million people here, you should have a multifamily operator that's got 100 and 150,000 units and several that have 30, 40, 50,000 yeah. units. Which is what some of the housing associations have. So you think about some of the bigger housing associations, there are about 120,000 units. Except the lion's share of that is affordable, effectively yeah, government absolutely. subsidized housing. What I'm yeah. comparing it to is pure market housing. No, no, absolutely. No, I, I'm not, no, I'm not suggesting, but in pure quantum, right. the similar scale, right? It would be that scale, except on a pure market basis. So there is no framework or landscape here that allows for that kind of growth or scale. And that's because the math between a for sale product and a for rent product, more often than not, it's just a de facto higher land value to have a for sale product. Mm. And is there a policy lever that needs to be wielded to try and equalize that? And this is something that I know we have looked at over the years with different people in the market that, that we've worked with, but it doesn't seem to have really happened. The answer to that is absolutely yes. And I think the critical issue for that is government, starting with central government, needs to have a desire to create this as an asset class. And if you look back over the last three, four governments, the desire is to create a home for somebody to own as part of what electoral promises are about. And therefore, there are no real time spent creating real initiatives that's going to create the scale that we're talking about. So until you see that, and then how that cascades down to yeah. boroughs and local planning and so on, I don't think you're going to see that happen. And what would that need to be? Because I guess governments would say to you, Ryan Prince, well, yeah, it's fantastic you're here with your institutional money building a few thousand homes for REM, but actually, look, I've got Barrett's, Persimmon, Barclay Group, all of these FTSE 100 listed guys chewing my ear off saying, give me this benefit, give me that subsidy. They're building hundreds of thousands of homes potentially for, for people that are going to vote for me. Who do I pick? Yeah. And, and my answer for a long time has been housing as a topic is a bit like climate change. So the way that that's framed is you're suggesting that wind is the only solution to climate change or carbon you know, capture. And my answer is, if you want to solve housing, you have to do lots of things mm. at scale. Of course, this month it's heat pumps. So I would argue you, you must do what you're going to do around for sale housing. You must have a progressive program around affordable housing, which absolutely needs a huge amount of time and attention and focus. Well, and you must have well. yeah. scale around renting. And between all of those, you will then start to create much more free movement choice and liquidity in the market for consumers and for, you know, generally speaking, the economy. And what sorts of things exist in Canada that, that we could learn from here? Because that's always cited by many people as relatively progressive, well, on a few levels, but certainly in, in real estate. And when you look at a lot of the institutional capital landing in Europe now, a lot of it's Canadian. Yeah, I wouldn't cite Canada as a success story per se. And in fact, what I would say when people talk to me about the London housing crisis or the housing crisis in the UK is, you show me a city in the world that's growing where people want to be that doesn't have a housing crisis, and we should really be looking at what they're doing right. And the answer to that is, I couldn't name you a city, whether you're looking at Berlin or Toronto or New York or Paris or Hong Kong, that ulti that is a growing services-led, you know, high-growth city, San Francisco, that doesn't have a huge 
housing problem. Mm. So nobody has solved this problem. It's not you know, unique to the UK and it's not unique to us. But let's go back to what you're saying just before about brand. I'm interested in how how you see that landscape developing in terms of, I guess in terms of now your business having a certain amount of scale, are you still focused on delivering expensive, really, I'm not, maybe expensive is the wrong word, but certainly premium amenities. Is that still where the market's at, do you think, in the UK? Because a lot of people did come in, and I, you know, I remember through work we've done and, and uh, with, with different clients over the years, and there has been this, someone to call it an amenities arms race where everyone's been focused on delivering something to outgun the next guy. Is that something you recognize for starters? And how do you think consumers have responded to it? What do you find that your customers want? What are they telling you? Well, so there's a bunch of questions in that. Yeah, sorry, lots of questions. So I would say a few different things. Number one is I would say our target market is generally people who are somewhere between, as a ballpark figure, 24 and 40 years old. Our average age is in the early 30s, but Mm. we have younger and much older. It tends to be singles, couples, and some young families. Generally, more and more people who, once they get to two or three kids, are going further afield, buying a house, renting a house, whatever it is. Yeah. So that tends to be the customer base. We generally, if you look across our entire uh, portfolio, you know, average income is somewhere as low as twenty-five or twenty-eight thousand pounds, and as much as sixty-five thousand pounds, and averages somewhere out in the middle of those two things. Yeah. So I would say, if you look at the GLA, you know, average income, we would fit that bracket. So I would yeah. say we're positioned more as call it affordable luxury. It's certainly not trying to be the top end of anything. And our amenities and our design and the way we operate the buildings are structured around that. So what you don't find in Uncle is I we don't try and oversell you a Four Seasons experience because one of two things happens. Either I need to staff and have cost structure that ultimately I need to pass along to you to achieve that, mm. or I'll go broke. And we've seen examples of both in the marketplace but the, so as a result, we, we've chosen not to do that. We really try and create these places and create an environment where we allow the residents to make use of them for themselves so that it's viable for us to do it and a benefit to the people who live in our buildings to have it. And then what do you see as being the anchor points of your brand? Generally speaking, if I look at our trust pilot review, which is kind of ground zero for how I think about you know customer feedback, because in the hotel space, in this space, customers aren't shy, is really as much work as we do around what you said about amenities. And, you know, we have Pelotons in our gyms and we have a phenomenal design firm and we use Bow Concept Furniture and we do a whole bunch of great things. They really care about service and they really care about how they're treated. So the very first building we opened, there's a huge sign at the entrance that says humans welcome. And the whole point of Uncle and the whole point of the brand name and the whole point of the ethos behind the brand is that we just treat you like a normal person. We apply common sense. That doesn't mean the customer is always right, because I can tell you they're not. But we do our best to apply some common sense metrics. And again, in our building, if you look at our FAQs, Uncle's always been a little tongue-in-cheek about reciprocity. And we say, we make these promises to you about repairs and 
flexibility and a whole bunch of things. But if you're throwing a party three nights in a row and keeping everyone on your floor up and they're banging on the door and they can't sleep, don't come knocking on our door for that service promise the next morning. You know, it's we'll do everything for you and you've got to hold up your end of the bargain in return. And that's what the, the brand is really about. Yeah, yeah. And then where does tech sit within that? Because lots of people are very obsessed by prop tech and that's been a whole, a whole chunk of capital flowing into that space now, right? And lots of people are excited about the potential to digitize the supply chain, not just in commercial real estate, but in resi as well, particularly where you, you know, where you've got you say four to 600 people in a, in a building, there's a huge opportunity to, to do things more efficiently. What, what do you use and where do you see that space? Um, look, I think there's no question that the real estate business writ large has been well behind the times compared to other industries on investing in technology. And there's some catch up going on that's well-deserved, well-placed, and will we'll come out. If you look at the hotel business as a parallel track, technology is an enabler of what you're developing. But ultimately, I go back to my service point, which is mm. it's a choice and it's an enabler. I don't think you can make technology the product. Ultimately, the product remains the same thing. I would use the hotel analogy. I'd use the airline analogy. The customer journey tech can enable the reporting tech can enable, but ultimately what your product is and how you feel about it, tech's not going to fix that for you. Yeah, yeah. But if I mean, focusing on those things, airlines and hospitality are very good examples of sectors that really weaponize dynamic pricing. They really understand those micro efficiencies that you can harvest just through insights, right? Um, and yeah, that, and I don't, I don't think some personally. Unless we're talking about a British Airways IT system, which isn't exactly anything. Yeah, to right. About. I'm not going to name names. So personally, I think those asset classes, when it comes to pricing and the commercial B2B applications like revenue management, yeah, I personally think those have more applicability in businesses like car hire and hotels, where you have scale. Yeah, and you have very high frequency. Yeah. And you have very little visibility of the market and pricing and planning. And so you need to make all those micro adjustments add up to a big difference over time. Yeah. In our buildings, you know, if you're running the occupancies that we all expect to run with the turnovers that we expect to run, actually all those micro adjustments and, you know, as I said, generally subscale too. So the volume that you're extrapolating over, mm. actually, I'm not so sure at this point in time that those things are going to move the needle that far. In the UK, if, if you're equity residential in the US and you have 360,000 apartments, probably a different story. But if you're in the UK and you've got 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 with the churn metrics and the, the occupancy rates that we have, in the near term, I'm not sure those are the elements of technology that I think are going to move the needle up. Yeah, yeah. So where do you think there is scope then? Where does the low-hanging fruit sit in terms of digitizing the resi sphere in terms of that some of its customer journey. journey. Yeah. I think either from the customer taking control of their own journey, and at the same time, the benefit is the operator gets to hand off some of that from yeah. them. So you know. how much, so for example, so on that point, how, how much do you outsource to agents? Or do you do everything in-house? We do pretty much everything in-house. We, we don't not use agents, because my view is, you know, if someone's going to bring us something we wouldn't otherwise find ourselves, we're happy to do that. Quite, but you don't want to hand over but 10%. But generally speaking, we try and keep everything that we do in-house. We don't outsource facilities management. We don't outsource all those other, those features, we do everything in-house. But that requires a, a certain quantum of scale, right, to enable. Yeah, exactly. So that's come over time. 
the facilities management, the property management side, we've done from day one as we've managed. Mm. But if you think about the marketing and the distribution and those side of things, that comes as you have more and more economies of scale. You're, if you're marketing 5,000 units through the same channel and the same brand, you have a better economy of scale than 500. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So where then do you go next? What are some of the areas that you see coming forward? So geographically, what locations are too hot for you? What locations are going to work? Because you've talked a bit about Manchester. Yeah, so... Some would say that's quite an overcooked market. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I we bought into Manchester in 2015 and we haven't bought in since. And I think there's certainly some supply questions that will need to be answered there that will play themselves out over the next year or two. And then we'll see the next market that'll be like that will look like Birmingham and then there'll be others. I think generally our view is we remain having a pretty strong focus on greater London. I think generally speaking for us, this is more of a market share than a market growth industry here in the UK and in London in particular. So our competitors really, our, what I mean is Your our competitor- Your competitor the status quo. No, yeah. Our competitor is the buy to let landlord. Our competitor is not the other build to rent landlords. The other build to rent landlords are all together educating the market on what experience can look like. And that's actually a good thing. Your, really com- your real competitor is the 98% in the market that are sold off plan or whatever they are and they're managed by yeah, absolutely. your local yeah, we had agent. We had Helen Gordon on earlier in the summer. It's no longer the summer, sadly. But in the summer, Helen Gordon was on Bosscast, and that's pretty much what she said as well. So, Well, that's good here. At least I've got something right today. <laughs> um, so I, I, think, I think that's you know, the way we look at it. So we're focused primarily on Greater London. We will definitely tactically look outside of London. As I said, we've got Manchester. We're going to do another one outside of London. We'll probably Mm. do a couple more in time and see. And then in time, I really have had, always had a vision to take the show on the road. And I've seen Uncle as a brand that I don't see why it's any different than starting Hilton or Marriott, you know, 50 years ago. And so the question is, is can you take this idea of a consumer brand and grow it to a place where it has some awareness? And then does that awareness have value and applicability in other markets that have similar dynamics to London? I mean, how does that, I mean, given where we started the conversation talking about hotels and that separation of the opco of the operating platform from the real estate, does that not mean that what you're now doing is inefficient? In what way? And when in the way that if it's more efficient to separate the operations of a hotel from the underlying real estate, What's the rationale for having that integrated within a residential rental setting? Well, the big difference between resi and hotel is, generally speaking, the management side of the hotel business is a pretty profitable business. So if you break down the hotel business, most hotels are getting you know, 100, 200, 300 pounds a night. If you break down what our mid-market gets a night, it's like 40 pounds a night, equivalent. Yeah. And then you look at margins and so on and so forth. So the multifamily business as a management business, unless you're at super scale in the tens and hundreds of thousands of unit, isn't a particularly attractive business. So you really do, until you get to that scale, need to marry those two things together. That, yeah. That's probably the biggest difference. No, that, that's fair enough. And then in terms of, uh, I guess in terms of where that market grows to, I mean, I mean, the people have been talking about the potential rise of service apartments, given everything now that we're seeing around working from home and, and obviously some of the fall off in hotel occupancy is raising questions over what happens to all of these business hotels. So are there opportunities there for Uncle or, or more broadly for, for Real Star into such 
I guess not really quasi resi, but it's it's obviously a bit of a peripheral venture from where you are now. Well, I think that the work from home hybrid working model that's come out as a per- probably a some kind of a permanent change as a result of COVID plays into what Uncle was really seeking to address before COVID happened. So the idea of hybrid working in those amenity spaces has now just been magnified. So we would have a gym and a lounge. Mm. And so it's like- so lots of people doing Zoom drink. meetings on the Peloton. Now all of a sudden, you know, we're creating Zoom rooms and we're creating genuine co-working space that's actually not just kind of window dressing. People are really there two days a week, three days a week doing their work. Mm. And are, those things that, are, they, are they things that you, are you commercializing those? Well- Our model today is a pretty all-inclusive model. So they're not commercialized in a separate revenue stream. They're part of what you get as the package of being inside of that, you know, branded environment. Yeah, yeah. And what's your view on the collective? Because that was mooted as as the next big thing. Co-living was mooted as the next big thing. And it's sadly gone down in a, a, well, in in a ball of flames, really. What went wrong there, do you think? Well, I don't have anything like a front row seat to what's gone on there. So I I have, you know, not really in much of a position to opine. I I would say this. I think the asset class remains a really interesting asset class. You know, we looked at it very carefully around the same time the collective came to the market. Mm. I think in the UK, one of the challenges that I would imagine they faced is that the planning regime doesn't really love the idea of co-living that changes from borough to borough, but generally speaking. So that whole topic of getting to scale is a challenge. And if you look from what I've seen at some of the planning applications, they end up landing more in the hotel use category where they're pretty restricted on allowing people to really live there for a lot of the buildings. So that like Canary Wharf is half hotel, half medium term stay, half long term, a third, a third, a third. I think that's a challenge to grow that way. And then what impact does it have on valuation and financing and a whole variety of other things? So I think there's a market for it. I think people at the right price, you know, the market will tell you. And I think there is a market for people who have just left as a student and want effectively a student-esque product, but they're not a student. And in student accommodation, you're not allowed to actually let to someone who's not shown you their card from university. So I do think there's a market for it. I think in the UK, the real question is going to be, will the planning align to make it financially feasible to do it? In the US and in other markets, it's probably not as complicated. Yeah, yeah. Just thinking about the capital markets, tell us about some of the partners that you've got on board with your platform. And I'd be interested in your views on where you see, what you see the view of of capital now on, on the UK residential market. So, you know, our partners over here, we've been pretty lucky, more than pretty lucky, in fact, that, you know, we've had partners that are large and institutional, and that's given us the ability to be reasonably conservative in our approach from a balance sheet point of view, and confident that when things go sideways at moments in time, which the reality of life is, they just do, you can withstand body blows to, you know, live to fight another day, as it were. And our hotel portfolio was a perfect example of that, where, you know, we bought the portfolio in 05, 9, 10, and 11 were horrific years for the hotel business. Fortunately, not as bad as, you know, the last two years have been, but that really did get us to the other side. So, you know, in our 
Onco platform today, we partnered with a large Canadian pension fund that we've actually been partners with in Canada for many moons before, which is the province of British Columbia's pension fund. They operate under a subsidiary here called globally called Quadrail. So Quadrail is our partner in the real estate. They own a stake in the management company and the brand in the UK. And so the brand, I think, is really well positioned to keep growing with scale from that capital and quite frankly, you know, their skill set and experience in other parts of the world. So mm-hmm. it aligns really well for continuing to grow and develop what we're doing. And is there enough potential growth in that market for more such capital to come in? I think time will tell. I think that there's consumer demand. I think the constraint is really more about what we talked about earlier about this deal versus a business, which is, yeah. is there enough sites with planning that you can get and contracting you can tender to match the volume of capital that would like to be in the space. So from an asset allocation point of view, you know, asset allocation has moved largely into the space that we're in. You read lots of press releases about, you know, big numbers that are going to be put to work in the space. And in reality, if you were to then track that back, you know, three, four years and look at reality, you wouldn't see that match up. I think part of that is it's very easy to write a press release, very hard to do a deal. And secondly, I, I think what people are learning in the space is it's a real operating business. And so like the hotel business, you can ask any consultant what you want about what the PL should look like. Going and then delivering that PL in reality is, you know, a very different thing. So I think it's hard for capital, if you're smart capital, to find groups that can actually execute on what that PowerPoint presentation looks like. And are some of those guys then are slightly guilty of not wanting to get their hands dirty or not having experience of dirty hands? Is that? I, I just think it's a new market. It's, you know, if you go back to student housing, I mean, when we got into doctor surgeries, student housing and doctor surgeries was covered by the same person at King Sturge, now JLL. That, that's where student housing sat in the world. Mm. If you look at student housing today, it's a multi, multi-billion pound asset class where, you know, Blackstone made their largest ever acquisition in the probably Europe, certainly the UK and IQ. So that's where it's come from and got to over that 20 year period. I think we are in, you know, I hate to use baseball analogies, but we're in the early doors of where BTR is. There's been lots of press. There's lots under construction. Most of it hasn't come to fruition of practically completing, let alone leasing up and stabilizing. So we really just, it just needs time to gestate and we'll get there. Well, mm. no, it's good to have baseball and ice hockey on the same podcast. So we don't, we don't get I enough. make apologies. I am a Brit technically, so I know I don't sound it, but if you spoke to my kids who make fun of my accent all the time, I think I've now officially lived here longer than I ever lived in Canada. Oh, really? It's just, just you can get through the uh, the right But my lines. childhood sports are clearly, yeah, baseball. Well, no, the problem, I mean, there's that's nothing wrong with that. That's, I mean, so I mean, look, to bring things to a close, where do you move next? You're going to go on the road. Where would you like to end up? Are we talking Europe? Are we talking further afield? So I, I would say our view is more about cities than countries. You know, we want to be in cities where we can have five to 10 locations in that city. So, so what does that mean? Paris, Berlin? So, so I definitely think you would think about some of the major metros in maybe Paris, Berlin, maybe Spain, but also the US. I mean, ultimately, I think that's where you've got depth and kind of ubiquity in a market. We actually, mm. pre-COVID, 
had a joint venture with a local partner there to look at scaling in the US and then clearly it just all got too difficult. So yeah. when the dust settles and things are right, I think we'll we'll want to relook at what's a plan to scale and see if there's some opportunities to go elsewhere. But, you know, my general approach going back to my tortoise and hare analogy at the beginning is we'll keep putting one foot in front of the other. But the tortoise, the hare from Keanu Reeves himself or, or Ryan Prince, founder at Uncle and vice chairman at Real Star Group. Thank you very much for coming in. Lovely to chat to you, Ryan. Thanks for Thanks for making the time and uh, and for, for putting Bosscast in the middle of your, your hectic schedule. Thank you very much to everyone for listening. You can continue to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, just search Propcast. And uh, thanks again to Ryan Prince from Real Style and Uncle for coming on today. I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Thanks a lot for listening. See you soon. Bye.